Welcome to Ping, a podcast discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. I thought I'd do away with a new podcast in the intro now that we're into our 16th episode, to which thanks to everyone who has subscribed, listened, and shared their support thus far. This week marks the 10th anniversary of World IPv6 Launch Day, an event that sought to encourage internet service providers, home networking equipment manufacturers, and companies around the world permanently enable IPv6 for their products and services. Commemorate, we've featured several IPv6 stories and case studies on the APNIC blog this week, which I encourage you to check out, as well as the IPv6 at APNIC portal to learn how to get and deploy IPv6. As our fortnightly podcast has fallen on this week, we thought we'd better find someone doing something IPv6 and researchy to chat to. So today we'll be chatting with Adrian Farrell about he and his colleague Daniel King's study into semantic routing, which we've linked to in the show description. Now, semantic routing is quite a decisive topic. So before listeners with preconceptions start searching for something else to listen to, please stick with us. We won't be trying to change your minds, but we will be discussing the cause for such preconceptions and the overall challenges of proposing and making changes to the network layer, as well as the opportunities that changes to this layer could provide as operators and content providers seek to develop the internet to handle users' needs for increased speed and lower latency. Adrian, thanks for joining us on Ping. Hi, Robbie. So quickly, for those who don't know anything about semantic routing and are wondering what it has to do with IPv6 and why it is so decisive, it's a process that involves adding routing instructions in IP addresses to provide differentiated forwarding paths for different packet flows distinct from simple shortest path first routing. This obviously requires spare bits within IP addresses, which is where the connection to IPv6 comes in as it has more space to play with thanks to its header, a feature that IPv4 addresses don't have. As for the decisiveness, well, for one, playing with network layer can be fraught with danger. We'll get to some of the other issues later. To set the scene further, Adrian and Daniel have taken it upon themselves to study more than 100 IETF proposals that have sought to justify the use of semantic routing to understand the overriding challenges that these proposers seek to resolve by using this process. One of the common use cases is how semantic routing can allow service providers to modify the default forwarding behavior based on the quality of service of their customer's subscription. Adrian, can you elaborate more on this and the purpose of your study? Well, you're quite right to start with the question of quality of service. And we've been around the block on this for more years than it's uh, safe to remember. And I think that the conclusion of the way we've deployed DiffServe is that it isn't really popular except for maybe achieving two or possibly three different grades of traffic. But on the whole, the conclusion has been that if you want to get cheap quality of service provision for your customers, the best way to do it is simply to buy more transmission capacity. That's to say, throw bandwidth at the problem. And so why is this coming round again? And a lot of times in our industry, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of cycle as new people come in and they think they uh, have invented a solution to a problem they perceive 
and give them five or six years and they'll stop doing it and then the next generation will come along. But there's possibly some pinch points here as well where the service providers are facing challenges to open up new revenue streams where historically they've focused on billing for throughput with traffic cap and maybe being able to add value with a promise of resilience. But the idea is that, well, maybe if they were able to break away from everybody gets, well, everybody's getting best effort. Best effort is also the best that can be delivered. If they're able to get some different grades of service, maybe they can charge differently. Maybe they can find different ways of making money. And so all of this comes along at the same time as 5G, and 5G promises all these wonderful services that can be added on top of the network. And we have seen some of these dribbling along in the last, I don't know, the last six months. Cisco, back in October, announced that they were going to have this holographic conference platform, and they, there was a, a rather uninspiring demo of it as well. And obviously, Metaverse was launched about the same time. And then people are talking about haptic uh, interactions and remote surgery, and there's a big increase in AR and, and VR games. And all of these demand better than best effort in some way. Whether that's ultra low latency or zero jitter or, or anything like that. And that's getting people to start thinking again about well, maybe some paths in the network can deliver some qualities and other paths in the network deliver other qualities. And perhaps we need to steer the traffic depending on what it needs. And it's in that context then that semantic routing has come up. And when we started to look at this, what we saw was that there are 101 different proposals for doing things in this space, uh, all of which are slightly different, most of which are targeted at specific environments, specific technologies or applications. And of course, they don't interwork. And as we started to look, we discovered there were so many, we made a bit of a survey. And uh, in the way of all good surveys, it is well not complete. You think you've got 90% of the examples, and as soon as you put it out there, another 50 people come along and say, but why haven't you included mine? So it's a bit of a background task for us, but we're trying to keep it vaguely up to date. What we had cause to worry about was that many of these proposals would work nicely in a, a walled garden. If you go off and do it in your safe network, maybe in a factory environment or in a IoT network, then you're probably safe to do whatever you want. But I think that the whole point of the internet is to be interconnected. And we got scared that most of these proposals haven't thought through what's actually needed to get safe into working. And when it's crazy to tweak the routing system, I really do mean crazy. You, know, you can break the internet tweaking the routing system and loops are not ideal and dropping traffic is not a good idea either. So we started to worry and put together a bit of a framework for things you should think about when you're playing with the routing system. 
And all that led us to then take a step back and say, well, what the hell is semantic routing? Which is probably your next question. So, Robbie. Well prompted, Adrian. So I gave a brief description of what semantic routing is at the start, but can you give us a more detailed description of what it is based from the proposals that you've studied so far? So I think the way to break this down is to start with forwarding. We'll actually take a step even back from that. Start with per hop behavior. Per hop behavior, you are looking at a packet and extracting some information from that packet if you like, some semantics, and saying, given that information, what we're going to do is apply these different drop precedences, queuing, etc. So you can take that a step further and apply it to forwarding. So you can say, given the information in the packet, which of course traditionally has been the destination address, what is the next hop we're going to forward this on? And then a step beyond that is, well, how did you make that forwarding decision? So your, your routing system has had to say, I know what markers might be available in the packet, and I know what the capabilities of the network are, so I can set up the forwarding, whether it's a forwarding table or algorithm or whatever, I can set that up to look at the markers in the packet and then forward accordingly. And then the ultimate step is, well, okay, what markers can we put in a packet? And that's been actually the starting point for most of the engineers looking at this. They've started with, I've got these fields available in a packet header. What can I put in them? Okay, that's very interesting. Maybe I've got the the flow label. Maybe I've got the type of service bits and the destination and even possibly the source address to play with. Yeah, well, that's all very well, but it doesn't give me enough. I can't properly encode the type of network behavior that I want for my flow. So what else can I do with it? Oh, well, I could do one of three things. I could overload the fields that are already in the packet. So I could take, for example, the flow label, and I could use it for something that nobody else uses it for at the moment, but it's in my safe network, so I can do what I like. Or I could take the destination address and say, hey, I only actually do the routing on 64 bits of this. That means I've got another 64 bits I can scribble on and do what the hell I like with. A second option is to add some fields. So there are good and bad ways of doing that, but probably the best approach is to take the extension header and say, well, I'm allowed to define a new extension header, possibly a routing header, and I can put my markers in there. And then all the routers in the system that know about my approach can look at it and make their routing decisions, whereas people who don't know will just continue routing as normal. And then the third approach, and I leave this as an exercise for the reader, is to say, IPv6 doesn't cut it for what I want. I'm going to throw it out and invent something, which for the sake of argument, I will call new IP. And that will look a lot like IPv6, but it will be different. It'll have more space for putting my markers in. And hey, while I'm at it, why don't I do some other things that have been annoying me as well, like handle multiple different address types and things like that. So at this point, the the audience should I hope, have thrown their hands up in the air and said, You have a keen sense of hearing, Adrian. Yes, this is a preconception that often riles people up when it comes to the discussion of semantic routing. 
But as you've mentioned, new IP is not in and of itself semantic routing, but one of many examples of it. Yeah, when you look at our survey, there have been various examples of semantic routing over the years, some of which have been wild and often their own research communities, some that have been very specific for their walled gardens, and some that have crashed and burned. I don't see any appetite in the world at the moment, even if it was the best idea ever for replacing IPv6. For goodness sake, it's taken us more than a generation to get IPv6 where it is today. And I don't think anybody has the energy or the money to say, hey, let's put IPv6 on one side and do IPv whatever we call it. And even if we do that as ships in the night, even if we only do it in private networks, it just feels too painful. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, IPv6 is not the best we could have done. However, it's the best we've got, and we <laughs> let's, let's go a bit further. So what that takes us back then to is the first two options as the real contenders for semantic routing. They're the options of overloading existing fields or adding some fields, yes, in extension headers. I guess I should have said there's another option, which is kind of to shim some extra information after the end of the IPv6 header, but before the payload, which is, you know, what MPLS did in its way. So we'd be defining a layer 2.75. I don't rate that because I think what we're trying to do is solve all this stuff in IP. If we wanted to solve it below IP, we'd just do MPLS and, be, and, and move on. Okay, so focusing on these two more viable options that use IPv6, what are the dangers that we need to address before either could be considered safe? So my concerns and my panic about this started when I saw people putting the information in the address field. And it was like, well, I thought we knew what an address was. And I thought we had some rules for how we process addresses and how, as the network grows, we might need to be actually using more bits of the address field rather than saying, oh, look, the last 64 bits, they all belong to the host system so the host can do what he wants with them. And so the panic there is if you overload a field, you're changing its meaning and you're doing it unilaterally. What happens to everybody else out there who thinks they, they understand what the field is for? They can't read it or they read it and route it incorrectly. So it's not totally unsafe. And you look at the SRV6 uh, network programming approach, that is to some extent overloading the destination address field. Now, you can make an argument that actually you've done an extra encapsulation. So you've put an SRV6 header, although it looks like an IPv6 header, outside your IPv6 payload. So you're in a safer space. Effectively, you're doing IP and IP with consenting adults. Even so, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. And it seemed to me that people hadn't done the right level of safety checks. Sure, they had a bag marked parachute, and they'd strapped it on their back, and they jumped out the plane. They hadn't actually opened the bag to see if it was a parachute or found out who packed it or whether it was actually made of silk or lead. And so that type of approach really just needs to do the due diligence, the proper research. 
And then those concerns extend basically to everything else, including the new extension header. So extension header, great idea. And in theory, you can stick whatever you like in there. But what happens if your extension header now has got, oh, I don't know, 512 bytes of routing information in it? Is that actually going to work? What's that doing to your MTU? What's that doing to the ability of the forwarding engine to actually find the information and all that lovely stuff? And again, it's great. You can do it in the research lab. You can prove it. In fact, I was talking to somebody just a few days ago who has a really neat application for satellite networks finding the right ground station by putting some geolocation information in an extension header. Kind of cool. But you'd only want to do that in that satellite case, not in every case. And that means maybe you've defined a TLV that is sometimes there and sometimes not there. And then everybody's got to pause for it and, and handle it if it is there, at least step over it. And it, it's all expensive. So I think some sanity needs to be applied to work out what it is we actually need to achieve, how we can do it in a generic way, and how we can do it in a scalable way. I'm getting a sense that this project is as much sociological as it is technical, Adrian, and you seem to be forming similar conclusions to some of our previous and upcoming guests on the show as to the weaknesses of the standards process and how we as a community can sometimes be too quick to either propose solutions without understanding how they might affect the whole internet or dismiss solutions and problems because of biases or preconceptions. I understand why it ends up the way it is. So if you're a researcher tucked away in a university somewhere, you've got a nice little well-scoped niche problem, and you're looking for a solution for that that you apply in a relatively small network example of your niche. And you go, well, hey, yeah, it works. That's enough. I've got my master's or possibly even my PhD on that. And if pushed hard, you might say, well, it was never my intention to build something that would be deployed across the whole internet. And then I see the problem that if you come to the IETF with one of these solutions, the first question you get is why? What problem are you trying to solve? And then sadly, a lot of people at the IETF will say, but that's not my problem. I'm not trying to solve that problem. I don't care about your solution, go away. So I think quite a lot of cat herding is needed to bring the people with proposed problems together to try to understand what the generic problem is, what the class of problems is, and then persuade people, and this is typically persuade the carriers, to say, yeah, I understand that I don't have that specific problem or use case, but I can see how I could look at my personal use case as an example of that generic problem. Right now, we have a space where we're looking for a solution. Now we can start to dig out all those proposals from the researchers and see whether they fly. And by fly, I mean, are they actually quality for real time? Are they meeting the scalability and performance and robustness and extensibility and security and privacy, the list goes on. All of those things need to be considered up front, and we need to stop trying to bolt them on after the fact. That's a great insight that draws from the philosophy of science, whereby it's important to form a question before seeking a solution. 
And in this case, getting consensus from the community on these broad questions can help get traction and assistance from them. And there are many instances of how quickly these kinds of projects can then progress once you have this consensus. Quick is one that comes to mind. Yeah, I think Quick is a good example. It's also not a fair example. The reason it's not fair is because it's an over-the-top solution. So it's not in the application layer, but it has many of the same characteristics as applying a new solution in the application layer. That is to say, you only need edge nodes or participating over-the-top nodes to actually know what's going on. When we get down into the network layer, things get a whole lot more exciting. Uh, the fragility is, is much greater. The need for full participation is much greater. And so pushing out a new technology in the routing layer, on the, in, the, in the packet forwarding layer, is much, much harder. And when we see new ideas, like we see the IoT routing protocol uh, ripple, the way that that comes about is, well, I'm building a whole new network so I can do what I want there. And that makes it easy. But if we're trying to push something into the core network, you know, when, when was the last time we did any major change to the IGPs or to BGP? You know, we, we tinker around the edges, but... Because they're so foundational, aren't they? And as you said before, if you mess something up at that level, then it can bring down the whole internet. So it is understandable that the community is hesitant to consider that there are any problems that need fixing with these protocols. But at the same time, if we want to take that next step and be able to offer data-heavy services, maybe it's in these protocols and foundational layers of the internet that we can have the greatest impact. Right. And before we get too excited, and a lot of us are engineers, so we get excited by making new things rather than actually finding the application for them. Uh, so we, we do need to decide whether we actually need them. So are we talking about these radical quality of service proposals because we actually don't know what the networks are like? Are we a bunch of engineers who are sitting at the end of our ropey last mile and assuming that the whole network sucks? Are we researchers in a lab who've built a network or have got some network data that's 10 years old and just doesn't deliver full stop, do we properly understand what tomorrow's infrastructure network looks like before we try to engineer over the top of that infrastructure based on bad assumptions? It's a really good point with parallels to a recent discussion I had with a researcher for an upcoming episode on the need for improved observability or running observability as he referred to it within protocols to help standardize and validate the effect of changes. Right. And historically, OAM has been the, the poor child of the internet that's got added in after the fact and We've built tools gradually, as we've said, oh, uh, we're having ter terrible trouble with our network. Let's throw in some OAM. And new ideas come along, and I fear the uh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So the act of monitoring and measuring our network means we are no longer monitoring and measuring our network. We are monitoring the monitored network. So we're actually not seeing what's really going on because we've turned on our OAM. Now, I think that that's a feature of a packet network. 
if you look at the uh, the TDM things where there's there's overhead that's always there and you can use it for OAM or not OAM and its presence doesn't actually change what's going on the wire, then that's one thing. But in the packet network, we don't send OAM. And then if we do, if we add it in any way, we are changing what's on the network. But you're, you're right. We even need to agree what are the things we want to measure and how do those measurements affect what the quality of experience is? Or if we just throw bandwidth at the problem, then maybe apart from my link is down, we just don't see the issue. And quality of service is really subjective, isn't it? To some mythical. Yeah, it's almost it's, it's ephemeral. It, it's very subjective. And I think that one of the things we're trying to look at with semantic routing is not just what can we do to improve the quality of service? But how does an application communicate what quality of service it wants? And how does it do that in a way that is both net neutral and private? So I think some of the early proposals, and I think I saw this in some of the new IP stuff, was that a packet would carry the identifier of the application and of the user. And that would tell the network exactly what treatment to give the packet, which of course is true, but it totally blows a hole in net neutrality because you can then see exactly what application is there. And it totally blows a hole in privacy because you can see what user is there. So obviously you don't want to go down that path, but you do want some way of the application saying, this is the type of treatment I want. Now, Way back when, I remember using uh, Skype over a 3G dongle. And the 3G dongle was provided to me by a company that was primarily a voice provider. And they really wanted me to use their voice service and not run Skype. And they were able to detect from the pattern of packets that I was doing Skype. So I would get about 30 seconds of call, perfectly fine. And then it would just or fall through the floor. And, you know, uh, setting aside the legality of that, the finer granularity you offer on the different quality of service parameters, the more identifiable your application. I'm glad you brought up net neutrality as it's another red flag in this discussion. But I'd like to get back to the technical aspects of semantic routing and in particular the role of IPv6. You mentioned how some proposals have described how IPv6 extension headers could be a favourable place to carry new identifier labels. How many bits could one use for such labels? <laughs> yeah, it's somewhere between one and many. And I think this is where the debate needs to be had because there's the risk of making this freeform. Okay, I need to caveat this with, I am not proposing this. Even we could use XML to encode the information. I think we need to get something quite punchy and tight, but we need to understand what it is we're putting in there. Oh, one other thing. We probably want to avoid the problem that DiffServe had, which is that the interpretation of the bits was local to the network. So when you went across a network boundary, you had to map, which meant you had to actually have an agreement and an understanding of what the mappings would be and, and so on. 
So I think we want to define a, a well-understood set of information that everyone can then pile in and understand. But we, we do need to keep it small. Because we don't want to increase complexity? Right. And we want to make it parsable. And we only want to include the things that we really need. And we do want to make it extensible because we'll probably miss something important first time out. And I find myself able to come up with hypotheticals, but not sure that what I'm suggesting is what the service providers actually want. So, yeah, I take latency as an example. I'm pretty sure that people want to be able to say, I need this packet to get through within 50 milliseconds, or I don't really care when this packet gets through. But is 50 the right number? Do I actually want to allow the packet to have a numeric value or just a few flags that say 50, 100, forever? And how to actually get that right is important because it affects how many bits you're encoding and also what the complexity of the processing is. And I guess coming back to our earlier discussion, there's a need to think about how to measure such service qualities. Right. So obviously, the end-to-end measurements can be done. That's pretty easy. I think that the routing approach to this relies on each link in the network being advertised with some quality parameters, whether those are uh, latency or whether well, basically it's just an extended set of metrics. And those may be being updated based on current state, or they could just be based on on knowledge. You know, I, I know that this link is this long and I know the speed of light and I know what the maximum queue size is here. So I can say the latency of this link is at worst this amount. And the third thing is multi-AS. If you're handing off an end-to-end packet with a demand for low latency and the user reports, my end-to-end latency is screwed, the various carriers involved in the transmission are all going to say, it wasn't me, it was him. Uh, and that requires somebody to be able to measure the domain-by-domain domain latency. And that's, well, obviously each carrier can measure that and maybe disclose it, but it all starts to get ugly. So there are these proposals for in-situ OAM. It's basically putting a tracker in the packet and it's updated as it goes along and maybe only at, at key points along the path, which is how, after all, OAM architectures in places like the ITU are, are, are well-defined. They're not everybody puts the OAM information in. It's just the key points and you can extract measurements there. But even so, that's heavy on the transmission. That's actually heavy on the packet processing. It might require signature as well, digital signatures. Who knows who's actually tweaked? I know I've got a problem transmitting packets, but I can lie about it and then I can tweak what he said he was doing. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. Which is why I'm guessing that many take the view that this is another example of adding complexity for the sake of adding complexity, and we should leave the network layer be. So I'm not 100% convinced we need to do this, but if we want to be able to treat some packets differently in the network, and we need to be able to do that better than DiffServe has allowed us to do, then we need some additional way of marking the packets and 
to be able to discriminate between them in the forwarding. And then we need some way to be able to instruct that forwarding on how to do the discrimination. And that's about as far as I've got in my certainty level. And from there, everything is, well, there are lots of these different proposals and let's try to put them in boxes and understand what, what works and what doesn't work and whether any of them address the real problem. Has it been difficult to leave your preconceptions at the door and approach a survey with an objective mindset? Yeah, I mean, the piece of me that's an engineer just wants to get on and make something. And who cares whether it has any value? You know, I put an outboard motor on my refrigerator and it's great. I'm not quite sure what it's for, but hey, look at it. Uh, and, and maybe somebody will come up with a use. Anyway, it's my baby. It's wonderful. Don't you dare criticize it. But I think I'm now old and gray and I want to understand why, not just, yeah, this works. Let's, let's make everybody use it. And it's funny, as, as the pressure to demonstrate use cases has come around in the IETF, I increasingly see people going on massive shopping expeditions for use cases. So they write a draft with 12 different ways you could use my wonderful idea. And each of them is true, but none of them is actually convincing because I'm not sure I really want to do any of those 12 things. And in any case, when I look at a long list, there are some I'm going to see I definitely don't want to do, or I think that's a bad idea, or this is just not the right way to solve this problem. And that tends to negate the whole technical idea. So what I really want to do is find the killer use case for everything. And, and you know, sometimes we, we get it wrong. Like, and I think MPLS is a great example. The killer use cases for MPLS were completely convincing pretty much up until the day we first deployed MPLS and went, oh, no, that's what it's for. And cool, you know, people shouldn't be prevented from experimenting and building stuff and seeing how it works. But in order to get the industry to invest uh, and to move, I think we have to demonstrate this is what we're trying to solve. This is where the money is. This is where the pain currently is and how we're going to, what we want in order to move on from that is a solution to this problem. And then we can go off and solve the problem. Now that's hard. Doing that is really hard. In particular, it needs investment from the service providers to tell us where the pain is and to be honest to some extent about where they hope to get their revenue from tomorrow. And if their answer is, well, you know, actually, we have a plan to put fiber to every household in the country and basically pack it over optical from the edge and everything's going to be optical switching in the core and uh, nobody's going to have latency or, or bandwidth problems, then I'm, I'm cool with that answer and we can stop fiddling around with routing. If the answer is, as people like Jeff Houston will, will say, that transit is dying. Basically, everything is going to get handed off in the access and it'll be a private backhaul or local data centers. Then, well, okay, let's just see what we need to do to, to fix the access and, uh, and not worry about other things. That seems to be how the internet is playing out at the moment with proposals being created that either favor the way that service providers or content providers wish for the internet to function. To this, have you come across any case studies or proposals focused on how semantic routing can benefit content providers? Well, 
I would say that even the private networks run by content providers are still networks. They're still moving packets around. Some of those content providers undoubtedly have a very flat service structure. They're moving large blobs of data around. But others of them are effectively building their own private internet, a genuine network of networks carrying different classes of service. And I don't know, let's imagine ourselves with a company that does video streaming, so content distribution of films, and also offers multi-tenant video conferencing. Almost certainly, they want to prioritize those video conferencing packets over the jumbo packets that are moving content around. So they actually have a need for discriminating between packets and providing different levels of service. How they do it, of course, it's their private network, it's up to them. But if they're buying boxes from the classic vendors rather than making the boxes themselves, then probably they want those vendors to be including the, the right bells and whistles. How will the vendors know which bells and whistles to include? Well, they will do the standards-based stuff. So we actually come full circle and effectively say, yeah, the architecture of the internet has changed, but what's going on inside the boxes and the networks hasn't really changed. Adrian, it's been a pleasure to discuss this contentious issue with you, which, as I mentioned earlier, is as much about the sociological as the technical. And one can only hope that the groundwork and objectivity that you're pouring into this study will help with realising the potential that still lies in the networking layer. Yeah, it's nice to be able to talk through this sort of thing in one batch and to somebody else rather than sitting at home ranting about it to, uh, to the, the plants in the garden. If this has piqued people's interest, then there are a number of internet drafts out there. There's an introduction to semantic routing. There's a semantic routing survey. And there's a document which takes this a step further into the broader, what should we think about if we're making any changes to routing? It's called challenges in routing. And that may be a, an interesting starting point for people who are trying to think about, well, what could we change or what could we do new? Yes, we'll add links to those in the show description, as well as to a free virtual IETF routing area working group interim meeting, which plans to discuss semantic routing on the 21st of June this year. Thank you again, Adrian, and all the best for the remainder of your study. Great, good. I'm glad you, uh, you enjoyed it and uh, didn't die listening. <laughs> if you are still alive and have made it this far, thank you. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, if so, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apenic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for your resource and community needs. Until next time.